Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Mark's Attic. Every, are, you, are you laughing again? No. I'm sorry. No. Everyone is cordially invited to join co-host Zach and me, Uncle Mark, as we explore a variety of interesting topics from the fields of paranormal activities, conspiracy theories, unsolved mysteries and disappearances, and lots more. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we are now on Apple Podcasts at Uncle Mark's Attic. Feel free to reach out and contact us with your suggestions. We would love to hear from you. So come on into the attic with us now as we go exploring and find out what mysteries we are looking into today. So today's episode is on the the legend of the Jersey Devil. So yes, we're a bit laughative today. So this is like our 20th try trying to get this all started. Uh, We do have like a live audience kind of watching us right this second. Um, I do want to point out though that me and Mark are wearing... uh, Me and Grandpa Mark, I mean Uncle Mark, are wearing... um, Someone's asking for it tonight, (laughs) really. (laughs) Wearing matching shirts. Here, I can stand up, I think. Show it off a little bit. Beautiful work right there. Okay. Yep. So I'm just going to kind of leave the beginning how it was. Um, We did have our little bloopers, a lot of them actually. So let's get into today's episode, which again is on the legend of the Jersey Devil. In many areas of the United States, they have local legends and folklore. Southern New Jersey has the legend of the Jersey Devil. Stories about the Jersey Devil have been told for over 200 years. It is a subject of intense debate, debate about the multiple legends of its origins, debate about its various sightings, and debate about what exactly it is. In our podcast today, we are going to provide an overview of the legend of the Jersey Devil. We will go over the different origin stories and review some of the more well-known sightings. And we will talk about the theories of what the Jersey Devil actually is and then tell you what we believe about this legendary creature. Yeah, the Jersey Devil is said to inhabit an area of New Jersey called the New Jersey Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens are a part of the Pinelands National Reserve in New Jersey, and the reserve is about 1.1 million acres Uh, about 22% of the entire state of New Jersey. So the reserve encompasses um, a lot of different uh, state parks, heavily wooded areas, and of course you'll see a lot of pines and pine trees and oak trees uh, and cedar trees. The area is very popular for people today to go boating, fishing, canoeing, or hiking. I've been there many times, and it's it's quite an area to go to and see, and it is a very large area to go through. Um, The area also has the remains of some old abandoned towns and mills. Now today you can visit one of those. It's uh, called Basto in the southern part of the Pine Barrens. And it was first constructed in 1766 as an iron works, iron forge. And at Basto, starting around 1766, that's 10 years before the Declaration of Independence was issued, um, household goods were made there like the iron pots and kettles, and also during the Revolutionary War, iron furnaces there were providing the Continental Army under General Washington with a lot of different uh, iron supplies, including cannonballs. Now, before any explorers and settlers from Europe came to this area in the 1600s, the people who lived in New Jersey and lived in these Pine Barrens were the Lenny Lenape Indians. The Lenape were known uh, as a very deeply spiritual people. They had an entire pantheon or array of forest spirits and gods that they believed in. When the first European settlers were coming into this area of New Jersey uh, and having their first interactions with the Lenape Indians, the Indians would tell them about some of these different forest gods, including one that was known as M. Singh. That's how they spell it and say it. It's the guardian spirit of, spirit of all creatures in the woods. And we bring this point up in particular because of the Jersey Devil legend. The way the Lenape Indians would describe this particular spirit was it was very much like a large deer creature with wings that could fly. And in later times, you'll, you'll read descriptions. We'll go through some of the descriptions of the Jersey Devil, and you'll see some similarities with that very early description of this spirit or guardian god of the woods for the Lenape Indians. The Lenape also told the Europeans that this area now called the Pine Barrens, uh, in their culture and in their language was called the Place of the Dragon. So eventually, as more Europeans came to the area, they pushed out the Lenape as they colonized the region. So in South Jersey, the majority of settlers were English. Uh, There are many different legends or stories about the origin of the Jersey Devil. So the first one would be, in 1735, a woman with 12 children named Mother Leeds 
is pregnant again. Some say she lived in Burlington. Other versions say different locations. Uh, there were rumors that she was a sorceress, and she is not happy about having another child, so she is quoted as saying something along the lines of, let it be the devil. The child is then born in the presence of some women who were helping Mother Leeds with the labor and delivery. Uh, the child looked normal at first, and then... It transforms into a serpentine kind of snake-looking thing, and it had hooves to replace its feet. Wings spring from its shoulder blades. The face transforms into a horse's head, and a forked tail appears. Then it grows to be bigger than a man, and then beats everyone in the room, and then bellows loudly and flies up the chimney. Almost like Santa Claus, but he <laughs> flies down the chimney. A similar version says that he ate all the Leeds family members. So that one is a pretty interesting. That's the predominant. Uh, yeah, that is the one. Legend of the, the Jersey Devil. When you get yep. down in in that area, that's the that's the number one story you're going to hear. So number two is kind of a, a shorter one. It it has the same basic storyline as as number one above, um, but the baby was born a monster or horribly deformed, and then Mother Leeds kept it in the cellar or the attic, not Uncle Mark's attic, until it escaped one day or until Mother Leeds died and then the monster took off into the woods. Yeah, those are, those are really the predominant ones. But there's a lot more. So we're just covering some of the, uh, the more widely known uh, origin stories of the Jersey Devil. Another big one that uh, circulated around was that Mrs. Leeds, who was a Quaker, a member of the Religious Society of Friends, um, she had a Protestant minister who came upon her at one point there at her house in the Barrens there, and uh, he was trying to get her to convert to his particular denomination, and she refused. So he got rather angry and informed her that her next child would be the offspring of the devil. Not very Christian of him, I might say, <laughs> but anyway, that's the story. That is one of the legends. And another legend uh, about the origin of the Jersey Devil was that a young girl— during the Revolutionary War, which was 1776 to 1783, uh, a young girl down in the Pine Barrens area fell in love with a British soldier. She lived in Leeds Point, and we'll get into that a little bit more a little later on about Leeds Point, but she lived in Leeds Point in the Pine Barrens, and as a result of this treasonous behavior, her affair with this British soldier, she gave birth to a devil known as the Leeds Devil. So we are on to the next one. Yes. Mm -hmm. Around 1850, a young woman in South Jersey had a wandering gypsy come up to her and ask for some food. The young woman brushed her off, and the gypsy got angry and cursed her. When the young woman gave birth to her first child, it was a devil. <laughs> the devil <laughs> then fled into the Pine Barrens and was often seen around the Leeds Point Leeds area, Point. Mm -hmm. which, like Mark said, again, we will get into that shortly now on to the next one uh that would be reverend right the yes Re the reverend reverend yeah. harry mm -hmm. uh charlton beck in his book jersey genesis published in 1945 reported on his meeting with a mrs bowen of leeds point mrs bowen showed him the ruins of a home of a mrs shrouds or shorts mm -hmm. and told him the same basic story as the mother Leeds story in the first story that we said, uh, but it was Mother Shorts and not Mother Leeds. And there are additional origin stories as well. Um, we could obviously go over each and every one of them, but that would take forever. So we picked sure. out the most prominent ones. Yeah, there was other stories about births in other locations or at other times in history. And also it could be the fifth child or the eighth child or the tenth child, not necessarily the thirteenth, but the thirteenth child is certainly the story that became popular. And of course, just the fact that 13 is that mystical, unlucky number. I think that's part of the storyline on that. But anyway, those are some of the basic stories or myths that went around the legends of the origin of the Jersey Devil. Now, in the year 2018, there were two professors at Kane University uh, in New Jersey that published a book called The Secret History of the Jersey Devil. And the subtitle of the book is How Quakers, Hucksters, and Benjamin Franklin Created a Monster. Now, in their book, they contend that everything we think we know about the Jersey Devil today is wrong. And they trace the origins of the monster back to the political fights and the religious debates and arguments of colonial America. And 
you can throw into that also some false news reporting that went on, some hoaxes and additional mythology. So the book is a very good book. It's a very, uh, it's certainly an academic work, a lot of footnotes. It's very well cited. Uh, in the book, they tell us the story of Daniel Leeds, who was an English Quaker. He came here. Uh, to that time, there was two colonies, uh, East Jersey and West Jersey. He settled in Burlington, New Jersey, in West Jersey in the late 1670s. Now, Leeds, as I said, was a Quaker, and as was very customary in England, where he came from, uh, he decided to publish an almanac. Almanacs were popular. They had all kinds of information about weather and weather forecasting, about, you know, uh, sunrises and sunsets. You know, there's still almanacs out there today. You see those farmer almanacs. So these were very popular, and they also had all kinds of different stories in them. And Leeds was someone who uh, really prided himself on being... uh, very much an intellectual, a real scholar. So he was constantly reading an awful lot of works across the board in theology and philosophy and science. So he was including all sorts of information in his almanac, the Leeds Almanac, including some astrology. Now, his fellow Quakers (laughs) were not exactly pleased with his work. He was uh, heavily criticized, excuse me, Um, heavily criticized by fellow Quakers and Quaker leaders at that time, uh, which annoyed him, and he continued to write and publish not just the Almanac, but he began to write other books. One book in particular that he wrote uh, was really despised by his fellow Quakers. Many of them publicly would burn copies of the book, and he continued to keep writing books that were criticizing the Quakers now. He would satirize them and make fun of them because he felt that they were going way out of bounds here and that they should be more open-minded like he was and they shouldn't be so quick to criticize him. But uh, some of the Quakers began openly referring to this Daniel Leeds, this member of the Quaker faith who's publishing these almanacs and his other works. They're referring to him publicly as Satan's harbinger or devil. So keep in mind that at this time, many people believed in witches and monsters. So in 1668... The General Assembly of East Jersey passed an actual law. If any person be found to be a witch, they shall be put to death. Uh, It was common for people to refer to political or religious opponents as monsters. In 1698, the Burlington Quaker Meeting publicly labeled Leeds evil uh, for both his publications and his behavior. Leeds eventually converted to the Anglican, Ang- Anglican, oh Anglican, <laughs> Anglican Church, and I can't, I don't even know the Episcopalian Church we call here in the United okay, States. Yep. Yeah. So the Leeds Devil is this vague and ill-defined creature, a legend rising up from religious and political quarrels, with some Indian folklore thrown in as well. Yeah, this. Um, we'll try to post a picture even of the book here. The, I, I read the book carefully. I mean, it is a good scholarly work. And they certainly do go back in time and give us a lot of information that I think a lot of us uh, weren't familiar with. And when you're talking about that whole idea of the legend of the Jersey Devil, their point in, in researching this book and then publishing this book was, um, you know, there's much more to this story than just some of these legends about Mother Leeds, you know, having a 13th child and all that. You have to go back in time and actually look at the documentation and records from that time. And they are right. I mean, certainly in England, let alone here in the colonies, as Englishmen were pouring into the colonies in the 1600s, you know, that was typical to, in debates and arguments and pamphlets that were being published, you did refer to your opponents as uh, monsters or devils. That was very much typical and very, very common in those days. And what they're pointing out is, here's Daniel Leeds, and he has been called the monster, and that it's here that you want to go back if you want to find the earliest roots of the legend of the Leeds monster. So it's a good book, but we're, we've, we're going to give you most of the, you know, the basic highlights of it, just to give you, a, for those of you that wouldn't have time to read you know, this book, um, give you the basic information from it so you'll have you know, the idea of what, the, what it was that they pointed out. So um, over the years after this whole uh, initial brouhaha about Daniel Leeds and his fights with the Quakers and also his son Titan, who took over publishing the Almanac, uh, in 1859... Uh, the Atlantic Monthly Magazine actually published an article by a journalist who went into the Pine Barrens. The purpose of this journalist going into the Pine Barrens at that point, middle of the 1800s, was to meet with and interview the people who lived there. And it was here that he was told about the story of the, of the Leeds devil and the whole story about Mother Leeds, although the people that he spoke to were basically referring to it as a dragon-like creature. 
Uh, overall, this journalist wasn't too impressed with those people in the Pine Barrens. He referred to them as Pine Rats, and uh, which isn't really an endearing term. And he considered them very superstitious. But he did report the fact that there were some people that were talking about this Leeds devil, this dragon-like creature that was there in the Pine Barrens. And then in 1887, there was a newspaper account that was published about the Leeds devil. Now, in this story that's published in this article, uh, it's, here we go, another twist on the legend of the origins of the legend of the Jersey devil. It was born in Evesham, outside of Burlington, and in that version, someone was actually firing silver bullets at the uh, devil as it flew up the chimney. And in 1893, newspapers in New Jersey and elsewhere were reporting on a train engineer who actually made uh, public reports that his train had been attacked by a creature while it was operating that he was sure was the Leeds Devil. In 1903, the book American Myths and Legends by Charles Skinner refers to the Leeds Devil as a dim tradition. He refers to Mother Leeds as a Quaker who was actually a witch her child was born in 1735 with bat-like wings, and that in 1740, a clergyman actually performed an exorcism, banning the creature from the area for 100 years. Then in 1905, the Trenton Times newspaper, after strange fo footprints had been reported in the Pine Barrens, published an article about the Jersey Devil. It was a monkey-like creature, and the parents were Captain Leeds and his wife, an alleged sorceress. The child was born in Bordentown. Mm -hmm. It was the second child. The creature lived with them for some years before flying up the chimney in 1808. It was called the Leeds Devil, Leeds Satan, or the Flying Hoof, yes. which is, like, it sounds like a superhero. Oh, there's hoofed feet, yeah. The flying Hoof. hoof. <laughs> I could see that in like a comic book. It would be good. <laughs> And in 1905, the Washington Evening Star newspaper published Demon of the Pines. Mother Leeds was a witch, and the father of her child was Satan himself. The child was more of a dragon, is what they said. Yeah, the father was the big guy there. Wow. These are interesting. These were uh, reports. There's only so many, really, from the time period after the 1700s. Uh, th these references that we're giving you here, there's not that many references that can be documented about the Leeds Devil. There were certainly stories and, and you know, oral traditions or tales being floated around, but these are just, these are really the most uh, noteworthy and prominent actual published reports about some kind of a monster or the so-called Leeds Devil. I think it's interesting because in that book, The American Myths and Legends, Charles Skinner wrote, um, he tells you that Mother Leeds is a Quaker, and then he tells you about a clergyman who performs an exorcism to ban the creature, but the Quakers didn't have the right of exorcism or anything like that, but facts don't get in the way of the story all the time. So that was one thing that stuck out to me when I was first reading that. What we want to jump to here, we're just trying to give you an idea of some of the stories that were in circulation about the Leeds devil up to this, up until the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, so, you know, just what people were saying, things that were being reporting, uh, reporting, and also just the fact that you can already see there's variations in the origin of it and the descriptions of it. We're going to see a lot more variations now because we're going to go into what's probably, I think everyone would agree who's ever looked into the Jersey Devil story. This is the most prominent part of the legend of the Jersey Devil. It's the week of January 16th through the 23rd in 1909, after the turn of the 20th century. And this is going to be, this is the most intense period of sightings and encounters with, up to this point now, it's still being referred to as the Leeds Devil still. This is the most intense period of any kind of sightings and encounters. So during the week of January 16th through the 23rd, in 1909, there were multiple sightings and reports of the Leeds Devils in South Jersey and also eastern Pennsylvania, right across that Delaware River that forms the boundary between Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So the very, well, we'll start with, we're not going to go through all, there's a, there's a good number of stories, but we're going to give you just some of, the, uh, some of the highlighted stories here, some of the stories that we'd like to kind of focus on that give you a good idea of what was going on. So around 2 a.m., this would be the morning of the 17th of January, um, in Bristol, Pennsylvania, Bristol's right on the Delaware River, a small town in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, a man by the name of John McOwen heard very loud noises coming from the canal. There's a Delaware canal that also was running along, and that was used a lot for mule-drawn barges that were carrying all kinds of supplies. So you're not quite on the river. You're, you're, you're 
operating on the canal that's running yeah, parallel okay. with the river there. So he heard these loud noises. He was in his home, and he compared to the noise, and this is one of the more interesting descriptions I've heard about the sound of the Jersey Devil. He compared the noise to the sound of the scratching on old phonograph records. Now, you're going back to 1909 now. But that scratching noise, that staticky noise you hear before the music actually starts. He did look out his window because of the noise. He saw what he described as a very large creature. The most he would compare it to was something like a large eagle and that it was actually hopping along the canal. Now, in that same town of Bristol, patrolman James Sackville also sees a winged creature hopping and making awful noises. He actually engaged in chasing this creature down. He fired his revolver at it several times. It took off flying first very close to the ground, and then as he reported, then it just soared way up into the air and took off across the Delaware River. And that's interesting because right around the same time in Bristol, Pennsylvania, the same town, the postmaster of Bristol, E.W. Minster, saw what he described as something that looked like a large crane, uh, but it glowed like a firefly. The head looked like a ram with curved horns. It had a long, thin neck and wings and very short front legs. And then other residents in uh, the town of Bristol there on the Delaware River also found strange footprints. That Officer Sackville that we're mentioning here, I mean, uh, I've mentioned in some of the previous podcasts that Zach's father and I do a lot of genealogical work. We're genealogists that really enjoy it. And these different people that we're referring to, like Patrolman Sackville here, I was looking into United States Census records, old newspaper articles. These are real people. <laughs> they are definitely real people. This is not made-up names I or just... fiction. He was, as a matter of fact, uh, Patrolman Sackville went on to become the chief of police in Bristol. In the 1920 census, you'll see that. I just wanted to say I had to compose myself when you said Sackville. I know I'm very immature, but I almost almost lost my composure there. So Please remember my age. I can't hear these kind of things. <laughs> this is a family show. All right. So back in New Jersey, in Burlington and Gloucester County, or Gloucester City, sorry, uh, strange abnormal footprints were found. On Monday the 18th, many people in Burlington found strange footprints in the snow, in their yards, and on the rooftops, and in the streets, even climbing trees. Some of the footprints, which resembled horses' hooves, were only three inches in length. Some farmers put out steel traps, men organized hunts. And then on Tuesday the 19th at 2.30 in the morning in Gloucester City, I think that's how you say that, right? Gloucester. You can just say Gloucester. Uh, Gloucester, okay. I didn't want to overpronounce or mispronounce <laughs> for anyone who lives there. Uh, a couple watched the Leeds Devil on the roof of their shed. It was around three and a half feet tall with the head of a collie dog, uh, a face like a horse, wings that were two feet long, and what, two feet short too front short. legs? Yeah. yeah. Too, too short. Mm -hmm. Too they short, just, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, back legs like a crane and horses' hooves. So that is a very crazy mixture of different things going oh, yeah. on there uh it barked i'm sorry I yeah no. <laughs> it's okay uh <laughs> i so, put baked i'm sorry <laughs> it was very baked um so it barked at the couple and flew away tracks were found in other towns including camden and swedesboro mm -hmm. now we are on to wednesday the 20th police reported seeing the leeds devil in burlington in Haddonfield, two searches were undertaken, both following strange footprints until they disappeared. In Collingswood, a posse of searchers actually saw it, but were unable to capture it. Right. I like that one very detailed description from that couple uh, in Gloucester City. Uh, it's a, I mean, it sounds almost like an animal that was made up by a committee put together by a committee of people that are all coming out with all these crazy ideas and insisting that it all be included in the final it's almost product. Like, almost like they put all the things in a hat and started just picking. <laughs> yeah. And it's a description that will be seen again and, and was certainly used before and, and will be used in the future by people that have seen it or some of this, not maybe not every single element that you just mentioned, but, but a lot of those elements. Now, the same week now, we're on Wednesday, in the area around Morristown, we had several witnesses who reported seeing a three-foot-high creature with long black hair all over his body and arms like a monkey, but a face like a dog and split hooves, again for feet, and a foot-long tail. And there were sightings at this time even in the states of Delaware and Maryland. And then on Thursday, January 21st, 
A trolley from Camden was passing Haddon Heights in New Jersey. The conductor and passengers reported a creature that was flying around the trolley. I was reading the description, how it would kind of swoop around them and then dive in and then, you know, pull away and and keep... uh, It was definitely upsetting them. Um, The conductor said that it looked like a kangaroo with a long neck and good-sized wings about four foot high, and he made a point of describing it as hideous. And in Philadelphia, the same day, around 4 p.m., in the afternoon on the 1500 block of Ellsworth Street, a woman went into her backyard and found a six-foot-tall creature she described with alligator-like skin and flames coming from its mouth. She screamed and understandably collapsed. Her husband heard the screams and came running out, and he reported to the police the exact same description of this creature. When he came out, it then jumped over the fence at the back of the yard and took off. Now, meanwhile, after that just happened, a trolley motorman working nearby on 16th Street in Philadelphia, one block over, and then up towards what's uh, Washington Avenue now, uh, reported to the police that he also saw a fire-breathing creature running across the trolley tracks uh, just shortly after this incident happened with that couple on uh, the 1500 block of Ellsworth Street. So very strange sightings that day all over. So on farms in Bridgeton and Millville, eerie screams and cries were heard and numerous chickens were found dead with no marks on them. In Mount Holly, two residents reported a creature with a horse-like head, big wings, and it walked on its long hind legs. On Friday the 22nd, in Camden, a policeman, Louis Schreer, Schreer. Mm-hmm. saw a jabberwock. Yes, that was the word he used. <laughs> drinking from a horse trough. It had the body of a kangaroo, deer antlers, and bat wings. So again, we're getting a crazy mixture of kind of all these different animals going on here. Exactly. Uh, As panic spread through the area, especially in parts of South Jersey, some schools were closed and mills ended up shutting down due to a high number of people staying home. There was widespread coverage of everything that was going on in newspapers, both locally and in other areas. Sightings were reported from over 30 towns. Possibly hundreds of witnesses were involved. So on January uh, 21st, 1909, an edition of the Morning Call newspaper from Patterson, New Jersey, carried the headline, Alarm in South Jersey. And it told about the Leeds Devil sightings down in South Jersey. This article told the story of the couple from... Which, uh, Gloucester, Gloucester, Gloucester City. Gloucester yeah. City, okay. It does not look like how it sounds. <laughs> it's English. <laughs> Who... <laughs> who reported their encounter with the Leeds Devil to the police and how the husband went to the police station with a white face and he was trembling. The article then reported that the devil gets its name from the fact that 35 years ago there was a similar appearance whose tracks started from Leeds Corner and Cumberland County. This is a good example of why we have to be careful when reading newspaper articles. Uh, They can contain misleading information. Uh, We have been unable to find any record of a Leeds Corner in Cumberland County. Yeah, I just want to mention, I think this may be confusion here on the part of whoever was writing this article. The couple from Gloucester City was definitely the couple that we had mentioned just a minute ago. And I actually did also look them up in United States Census records and old articles and uh, confirmed who they were. Uh, the husband and wife, and they definitely were very frightened by that strange creature they saw in the yard, and they did go to the police station to report that, and they were terrified. But Leeds Corner, we just haven't been able to find a Leeds Corner in Cumberland County. I can't help but think that they're confusing this with Leeds Point in Atlantic County, New Jersey. And Leeds Point is not named that by coincidence. That Daniel Leeds we were talking about a little while ago, he had a number of children, and... uh, In the course of his own business work and doing those almanacs and publishing his books, uh, he was able to buy properties in some other areas outside of Burlington. One area where he bought that property was what today is known as Leeds Point in Atlantic County, New Jersey, going towards Atlantic City. So uh, that's why it's named Leeds Point. That's the source where many of the, the legends of the Jersey Devil will tell you that, where Mother Leeds was when she had this 13th child was in that area of Leeds Point. In, in Atlanta County. So that's why there's, it's, it is important to at least have a basic understanding of the history to understand what is this thing that everyone's talking about, this Leeds devil. But be careful about reading some of those old newspaper articles because they, they can contain uh, 
misleading information. And as we're about to see, sometimes they were used by certain people that were trying to pull off a hoax about this Leeds devil. So that leads us into our very next story. After all of these and we just gave you some of the highlighted cases, all of these incidents and sightings and reports from uh, over 30 different towns in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, as well as Delaware and Maryland, uh, there was, here in Philadelphia, a lot of, or here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I live, um, today, there was, a, uh, there was a lot of newspaper coverage about all of this. And there was a man in Philadelphia at that time, 1909, who was working as the promotions man, a public relations type of guy, for a place in Philadelphia that was called the Ninth and Arch Street Dime Museum. Now, today, when we think about a museum, we have you know one very clear image of what we what we see about you know go there to see a museum with historical artifacts or works of art. Dinosaur bones. Dinosaur bones. Yep. Uh, Natural History Museum. Yes. Very good, Zach. You get an A on that. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. Um, and. This particular place was not exactly a museum by any of those definitions we use today. It was really more of a uh, carnival type of building. It really was. It was several stories tall. You had a penny arcade on the first floor, and then there were circus sideshows, animal acts. You know, uh, unfortunately, sometime when people were born with certain physical abnormalities, they actually would put them on display. It was sort of, people would pay to go and see that. These, it's a sad, sad thing to think about today, but, you know, that was something that people would go and pay for. So, like I'm saying, it's a carnival atmosphere, or a circus sideshow atmosphere in this so-called museum. But this public relations guy convinces his boss that we got to take advantage of this Leeds Devil news coverage here and use this to drum up business for our you know, dime museum here in Philadelphia. So what they did was they got someone that uh, the owner knew up in Buffalo, New York, to lend them a kangaroo. They painted stripes on it. From what I've read, the description was mostly like white and green stripes. And then they attached a pair of homemade wings. The first that the kangaroo ate. So then they had to construct another set of homemade wings for this thing. And they planted stories with the local newspapers telling them that the Dime Museum was going to organize a very serious hunt for this Leeds devil. And they were going to try and capture it. And if they were able to do this, they would put it on display in their museum so people could pay to come and see it. What they did in effect was they hired some circus performers, mostly clowns, to uh, dress up in, you know, clothes like you're going out in the woods hunting. And they stage an entire scene, basically, of these guys going into the woods, and then you can't see them, and then you hear all kinds of horrible noises coming out of the woods and screaming and gunshots and all that. And then you see these men very mysteriously coming out of the woods, and they're carrying a cage that has a blanket covering it so you can't see what's inside. And they're announcing to everyone there, including the reporters, you know, we've caught the Leeds devil. This is their big thing. So they... um, Newspapers ran with the story. They thought this was fascinating. And in the museum, they had crowds of people coming and paying money to see this Leeds Devil, which was this poor kangaroo with the paint on it and the fake wings. And they had it in this sort of a cage-like display where they'd have a curtain in front. And then, you know, where they'd gather so many people in the room who had paid to see it, they had a boy behind the scenes with a stick with a nail in it that would kind of jab the kangaroo to make a jump and make noises and things like that in order to excite or titillate the crowds and give them their money's worth of seeing this mysterious and uh, creepy, you know, Leeds devil. It didn't take too long for some of the newspaper reporters and other people to catch on to the fact that this was a hoax and they did expose it. After a few weeks of running and a few weeks of successful bringing in the big crowds and getting some money into their dime museum, uh, they were discovered and the entire thing had to be shut down. And the poor kangaroo, I believe, did go back to Buffalo, New York, from what I've read. So there's, the, there's a case of newspaper articles reporting on a hoax that was being consciously and deliberately planted in the newspapers for the purpose of basically making money and stirring people up and getting them excited about, in this case, the infamous, scary monster, the Leeds Devil. Uh, as newspapers around the country were reporting on both the, uh, all the incidents that were happening in all those towns and cities in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and as they were continuing to give coverage, too, to this so-called successful hunt for the Leeds Devil, uh, newspapers, especially newspapers out of this area, began switching from referring to this monster as the Leeds Devil, and this is where they begin to refer to it in their headlines and in their articles as the Jersey Devil, and that's the term that's going to start slowly taking over as uh, the more predominant and the more well-known and accepted term for whatever this monster or creature was that was in the Pine Barrens. 
Yeah, I just want to point out a actual fun fact about that um, kangaroo zebra thing. Mark was actually talking about that, and he was actually there. <laughs> I, I'm he sorry. He was there. I'm... He was speaking from experience, actually. He he was there. He saw the kangaroo. In 1909? Yeah, yes. When, before you, yeah, when you were born and you were there. Thank you for sharing that fun fact with all of us, Zach. You can leave the studio right now if you'd like. I'll just take it from here because, okay, the old guy is like, you know, being pushed to the limit that was, here. But this, that was for your little thank you, smart that was comment for, earlier about my dinosaur bones in the museum. Well, no, you're right. There are museums that show uh, dinosaurs. Trust natural me, museum of natural been. history. And no, I wasn't hunting those dinosaurs <laughs> any more than I was there with that dumb kangaroo, that poor kangaroo in that dime museum. So please, I'm not quite that old, I don't think. All right. Back to the topic. Yes. In the decades following the January 1909 mass sightings of the Jersey Devil, there would be occasional reportings of sightings and encounters. Sometimes it would be just people hearing strange screams and sounds in the woods. Sometimes strange footprints were found, and other times strange creatures were seen flying in the Pine Barrens. Farmers would report attacks on their horses, chickens, and all of their cattle and anything you really can see on a farm. Uh, there were occasional uh, posses going out on searches. That's why you like working with me. You get to learn new words yeah. <laughs> from the old guy here, from the dinosaur hunter. Yeah, posses organized uh, search groups that were going out, and they would, be, they would happen sporadically, and they'd be in different areas where people were suddenly hearing screams at night or they were finding these strange footprints again, and we can't stress enough here that these footprints can be described in very different sizes and shapes. I mean, very often, certainly like a horse's hooves uh, or a um, pig's hooves, some people have referred it to, or, or cow's hooves, but um, definitely, you know, differences in size from like three inches to, you know, several feet. I mean, th th there's quite a bit of variety in all of these stories. So let's just get to the point now where Zach and I found a newspaper article from February 10th, 1957. It was the Asbury Park Press. So now we're in 1957. You had the big sightings in 1909. And then in the following decades, there would be sporadic reports. And we may do another podcast on this where we can go into some of those other reports, but we didn't want to make this overly long with, we have a lot of reports we could go through and all the information that we have. But we're going to move up ahead here because by the time you get to 1957, this newspaper article is kind of interesting and it's very telling about what was being said or thought about this Jersey Devil by this point. The headline of the article in the Asbury Park Press was Jersey Devil, Legendary South Jersey Terror, Yields to Modern Technology. And then the article goes on to state that no authentic reports of this hideous monster have been brought to light for more than 20 years. From the Civil War to well into the 20th century, it instilled fear into the hearts of residents of eight counties in New Jersey. But the expansion of electricity and cars and industry in other words, modernization, have left it homeless. The present generation in South Jersey has all but forgotten the Jersey Devil. So myself and Uncle Mark think this article was incredibly premature in declaring the death of the legend of the Jersey Devil. So in the, the very same Asbury Park Press, on November 1st, 2018, just about 31 years later, I may be... Pretty bad at reading, but I'm, I'm fair at math, so thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm just going to ignore him. I'm not paying any attention <laughs> at this point. The newspaper printed an article by... <laughs> I just proved my point. <laughs> Patricia Miller, the author, wrote about her own personal experience in the Pine Barrens that had happened many years ago. She and five friends, who were all students at the Trenton State College, drove to Englishtown to visit friends. They drove in an old station wagon. It was October, and they were in the Pine Barrens. Before they started their return trip home, they made sure to fill up the gas tank. As they were driving back on Route 539 in the Pine Barrens, which was a pretty deserted road with dense woods on both sides, their car suddenly died, and the gas tank showed E. These were the days long before cell phones. Again, Mark typed this so he would know. They, they had passed a home about a half a mile back on the road, so they decided to all walk there together and see if they could get some help. As they walked along the road, they started hearing noise in the woods, 
as if something was coming close to the road and then scurrying away. Mark, you were looking at me there like you wanted to have, uh, say, no. <laughs> say something. <laughs> yeah, nothing. <laughs> looking for a new co-host, but I don't want to say anything else right now. <laughs> the noises kept up the whole day, or the whole way, <laughs> to that house. And it was disturbing to everyone in the group. At the house, a young couple was home, and the husband turned out to be a part-time teacher at Trenton State. He told the group to go back to their car and lock themselves in the car. He would go get gas and then drive to where their car was, and they would refill their tank. As the group walked back to the station wagon, the noises started again. Whatever was making the noise sounded like it was zigzagging back and forth. The whole group finally started running to their car, and they all piled in and locked the doors. And then it happened. This bizarre-looking creature came out of the woods. It was tall, with wings and hooves. It was definitely not human. It began moving towards them with a very strange gait. The author described it as moving like someone being on a bike and moving it with their legs. No one in the group could speak as fear and shock gripped them. Then the headlights from the car of the teacher who was bringing them gas appeared. And it started the creature and it darted back into the woods. So I think that is a very prominent story. It's a fairly crazy story and I know if I was in involved i would i would probably be just as scared as it was a whole group and she made it very clear in the article how frightened they were how none of them could speak eyes were tearing up because you're you're dealing with again shock at that point of something that's just unearthly you honestly i mean it's not something you've ever seen before and that's why it was even hard to uh, compare it to anything else as, as the author said so i mean it's this again it was this strange mix and that strange gait that strange way of walking like if you're on a sitting on the bicycle you know what i mean and using your legs to move a uh, very strange gait that it had that's an interesting story and that was in that 2018 edition of the very same newspaper that back in 57 had said and eh, nobody believes in the jersey devil anymore it's like it's forgotten lure forgotten story down there in south jersey but i think they were premature because there were other things that happened certainly there have been reports in the 1960s and 70s and 80s right up to the current times um and we'll go into some of those i think at at another podcast rather than go through that right now mark can i interrupt you real quick you can always interrupt me i just realized and i i know everyone listening right now thinks i'm an idiot that was in 1957 that that original newspaper came out the article, the newspaper the article, saying, right? you know, yeah, the Jersey yeah. Devils. So I now. said 31 years from 1957 to 2018. Right. And that is completely wrong. And I just realized that now when you said 1957 and I was talking about 2018. That's okay. I never so paid attention to So I'm bad at math and I'm bad at, bad at reading. So there's that. And who wouldn't want to have him as a co-host <laughs> on a podcast? He's got all the qualifications. That's great. <laughs> so we will go into some of those stories. Don't worry about that. Everyone's getting news to us that listens to us. Uh, now, at this point, though, I am going to tell a very personal story. I don't have any notes written on this. Uh, I've talked about this with Zach and with your dad, of course. Um, so I just want to tell you all something uh, from my own personal life. This is something you'll never, you've not seen this on the internet or heard this anywhere before. I've never certainly talked about this publicly before. But I grew up in South Jersey. I was born and raised in South Jersey. Um, and I had a number of brothers. And uh, the youngest brother was born in 1970. I was 15 years old then. I'll do the math for you. I was 15. And, <laughs> and uh, um, I wasn't living home, of course, when this happened. But, you know, when he was in his teens, he joined a scout troop, local boy scout troop. Now, the leader of that troop had been a New Jersey park ranger for many years and had worked in the Pine Barrens and became rather well-known and renowned and respected for his own detailed research and work on some of those abandoned towns, old mills and things like that that were maybe you could see the ruins of, maybe even just the foundations of in some cases, you know, in in the Pine Barrens and in South Jersey there. So he was well-known. He wrote a couple of uh, books. They were small books. I had seen them. My brother had copies of... So anyway, he was truly an expert, and he used to take the scouts into the Pine Barrens, and um, he basically was focusing on survival skills. He he was a little different, I think, than a normal scout leader. He was definitely running it almost like a paramilitary operation, but I know my brother really liked him a lot. And at night, they would sit around the campfire, and he would tell them stories and answer questions. So when my brother was in that scout troop, he did hear stories about the Jersey Devil from his scout leader, who had been that ranger for many, many years, and who firmly believed in the reality, in the existence of the Jersey Devil. So fast forward now. 
we're going into like the late 1990s now. I come home to visit my parents. My brother comes over to the house and he's married now. And not too long before I had seen him that day, um, he had been over in the Pine Barrens in that Basto, what we were talking about, the, the old colonial uh, um, settlement there, you know, the, and the Iron Forge. You can still go there and see the Iron Master's house and all that. It's pretty cool. So he went over there with his very young son. I think his son was only about a year old at that, maybe, maybe two years old at that time. But he went over there to get out of the house and just, you know, stretch your legs. There's a lot of trails, a lot of hiking trails and paths in the Pine Barrens and definitely around Basto there. So while my brother was out walking with his son, he came upon two rangers uh, from, from the New Jersey Forest Department there that, that work in the Pine Barrens. And they stopped with, talked with my brother, and my brother started telling him about his old scout leader and asked, you know, did you know? And they, they knew who he was talking about right away because they knew him, number one, personally, and uh, he was legendary within the department for the type of work that he had done and all the years that he had spent working in the Pine Barrens. So the conversation slowly shifted to the Jersey Devil because my brother was curious. What would they say about the Jersey Devil? And what these two rangers said to my brother, uh, I firmly believe, I don't think they were trying to mislead him or pull his leg or, you know, it would be kind of creepy and rather nasty to do something with a young father and his son out there, you know, in the woods. I believe these men were being very honest with him. Yes, they believed firmly in the Jersey Devil. And this is what they told my brother, that there are times when they're out at night, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, I'm fighting this cold, so I keep coughing off to the side. Uh, there are nights when they're out there and as part of their jobs, they often camp out overnight, sometimes be near people that are out there camping because camping is another popular thing that people can do in parts of the Pine Barrens. And sometimes they're on uh, work assignments out there where, you know, uh, during the day they're keeping, uh, they're taking inventory really of certain uh, rare species of plants and animals. They're, they're doing work that, you know, is normally done by the forest rangers like that. And they told my brother that they know when, and it doesn't happen very often, I want to stress this, but they know when this Jersey devil creature or whatever it is, is around because they told him there were those nights where they're out there, they're in their tent, and the forest is alive at night with all kinds of noise from all kinds of creatures that live in the forest, and it'll grow completely silent. That's number one morning. There's no more noise, no crickets, no owls in the trees, no birds, none of the other insects or anything that make noise. There's just no noise at all. And one of the rangers told my brother that one occasion when this happened, he actually picked up a rock. They were camped by a river. I think the Mullica River, but I don't want to say that for sure, but they were camped by one of the rivers that runs through New Jersey, uh, through the Pine Barrens, and the Mullica River is definitely a big river there. Uh, he threw the rock. The rock went into the water. There was no noise at all, no splashing noise, no sound at all, just a completely eerie, unearthly experience that would happen and then would come the smell of burning sulfur you know that smell from when you light a match or whatever and they told my brother that those are typical things that happened on those rare occasions when they as rangers have encountered the jersey devil in the pine barrens and like i said this would have happened in the late 1990s uh, when they told my brother this this story um my brother looked at me he had paused and i said to him based on my own reading and my own training, uh, my God, that sounds almost demonic. And he just pointed his finger at me and said, that's exactly the word the Rangers then use when they told me, you want to know about the Jersey Devil? We believe it's demonic. And that was really the, uh, the gist of the, of the story. So that story has kind of haunted me ever since then. It's great to read all these, these great books that you can read about the Jersey Devil and you know, to read about the different legends and to read the sightings, you know, and there's all kinds of stuff out there on the internet and there's, you know, websites, there's groups on Facebook and I do follow them. I find it interesting. There's people that are still organizing Jersey devil hunts out in the Pine Barrens. They go out every so often, they, they report, they, they put out their uh, film work or photographs or whatever. Um, so there are things that are still going on, but that story is always in the back of my mind, no matter what I'm reading what I'm looking at on the internet or on Facebook or, you know, wherever it is, whatever I'm looking at, that story just won't leave my memory. The rather haunting tale of these two rangers that spoke to my own brother and then my brother coming over to quietly tell me, because he knew I'd want to know this because he, he said, you know, you were talking about the Jersey Devil long before I ever heard of it. And I said, well, yeah, it's just, this is the way I am. That's the kind of, I've always been interested in anything that's paranormal or unusual. And especially growing up in South Jersey, I'd heard 
little bits and pieces about the Jersey Devil when I was a boy, like in the 1960s. But the first book that was really written that was strictly about the Jersey Devil uh, didn't come out until 1976, and I read it as soon as it came out. That's a current copy of it, uh, you know, what it looks like today. If you want to, I don't know if they can hold that. We'll put a picture of this on there, but uh, that's a really good book. 1976, uh, this has a lot of the stories that we've already been telling you about from the 1909 incident and some of the other uh, some of the different legends, some of the origin stories and all that. James McCloy and Ray Miller. So it came out in 76, and it's been reissued uh, a number of times since then, so you can still get brand-new copies of it uh, at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, Great book. Uh, That's why I think, I mean, there's other stories we can tell you, but I think telling you that very personal story from my own life, told to me by my own brother, um, is is a a game-changer for me. And that leads us right now, before I say anything more, (laughs) that leads us right now into what we want to wrap up with, which is the theories of what the Jersey Devil actually is. So the first theory would be, uh, was it really a deformed child that fled into the woods? I think that's almost a fair assumption. Yeah. Uh, The second one would be a sandhill crane. And personally, I have seen sandhill cranes. Um, They're kind of tall. And I've they're they're noisy, they're loud. I I can see how someone could mistake it for being the Jersey Devil. Uh, it is around probably that three feet. Right? I've never stood directly next to one, but if if I were to describe it, I would probably say around three feet. Mm-hmm. And they have the little hunched head. I don't know. You can look mm-hmm. up a picture. I could put a picture up. We'll put whatever. a picture on the yeah. sandhill crane. Um, so that one is also another fair uh, assumption, I would think. And number three would be a pterodactyl or some other prehistoric flying reptile that lives in caves. This one I'm kind of not really... Uh, the misidentification of large yeah. owls. <clears throat> I've seen people actually uh, being interviewed on TV. These would be like wildlife biologists who have been asked about the Jersey Devil. And in their opinion, they think that... Now, they're not saying this is for every one of the sightings that's ever happened, but they could see where someone who's not familiar with the woods, especially at night... Uh, not familiar with the wildlife, uh, could definitely be startled by some of the larger owls that have very big wingspans. Um, whereas you hear a noise and you look over and you just basically see this big shadow. We said, well, you could have a rather rather large wingspan on that creature, strange noises coming out of it or you know, whatever. And you know, the owls sometimes have those tufts that almost look like horns on the head. So that's why I think uh, some of the biologists have suggested that as just an explanation for some sightings, especially at night. Uh, also, one of the things that comes up, really, going back to the very earliest reports of the Leeds Devil, uh, is the question of mass hysteria. And that comes up about uh, some of the things that happened after those initial experiences in the colonial times with Daniel Leeds and his fights with the Quakers. Some people are wondering if, uh, at that time, they did believe in witches. As you said, there was a law in New Jersey that was actually passed late 1600s there, you know, uh, outlawing witches and saying that they were to be seized. Um, there was definitely belief in that, not just in Salem, Massachusetts, but certainly even in, in southern New Jersey there. And also the week of the 1909 sightings, that January 1909 week that we were giving some of the highlights from, uh, many historians and people that have looked at the legend of the Jersey Devil have wondered, was this a case of mass hysteria where everyone's getting so worked up because it's just, you know, day after day of these reports coming in of the strange sounds, the strange footprints. Some of the people, you know, at that time were saying that they could hear it trying to open the door, the back door of their homes or their farm, you know, their, their barns or whatever. Um, so the question was, is this just a case of people are starting to see something because they're getting all worked up and, um, in a state of hysteria, basically. They're not clearly thinking. They're not being level-headed. Uh, and the last two remaining theories, is it a demon or is it a cryptid? A cryptid basically would be an unknown biological species. You see all those TV shows right now, you know, on tracking Bigfoot. And, and there's certain other creatures. You know, these would be in the field of cryptozoology, of unknown animals, basically, that have yet to be discovered and documented by scientists, biologists, wildlife biologists, and all that. So uh, those are really like, there's other theories too, but those are really the top seven theories about what exactly could this Jersey Devil creature be. Uh, The Sandhill Crane, again, I think that could be possibly for some of the sightings, but currently, certainly, everyone seems to agree that Sandhill Cranes are not in the Pine Barrens region, but 
may well have been there. Where you've seen them is in Michigan, when yeah. you're up in Michigan, yeah. definitely. Um, and the pterodactyl or any type of prehistoric creature, that's just one theory that some people float around just because of the strange look of some of those flying reptiles that we see when we go to those museums with yeah. the dinosaur bones in them. And we see the, uh, you know, the recreations of them when they try to make some sort of a model. I mean, some of them are very strange looking. Um, I do want to point out, though, the, the idea about a deformed child. Certainly, if we're going back now into the uh, late 1600s and the early 1700s, um, when a child was born with any kind of physical deformity, it was the assumption of many people at that time that that was basically almost a punishment from God for something that the parent, parents or one or either of the parents, uh, you know, were responsible for, but it was actually punishment from God. So, and, and people with deformities were actually referred to as monsters very often. You can see that in some of the writings from back then in pamphlets. So the question is, if someone had had, if this mother leads character had had a deformed child then yes it wouldn't be surprising if she were to keep that in the house because you don't really want the child being seen let alone scaring anybody else and then comes those those stories that we heard about whether it escapes the house up the chimney or you know um the mother dies and then they you know they leave the house because she's no longer there to take care of them they run into the woods and become almost like you know uh feral feral people in the in the in the uh in the woods you know living in the wild like that so that's why, you know, I, I mean, I can, any, any of these I can look at and say just about, you know, you can see it at one point or another, in one case or in another, you could definitely see it could be a Sandhill Crane or, you know, colonial times, people sighting someone in the woods that's kind of a, you know, basically a wild man that had, you know, been born deformed and, and eventually had to live on their own in the woods. Mass hysteria certainly is, is something I don't think we can just dismiss off the top of our heads, you know, I mean, and certainly in 1909 with some of the stories, you see such variety in the reports of what the Jersey devil looks like, or the Leeds devil, as they were calling it then still, what that Leeds devil looks like, you know, the descriptions with kangaroo bodies or, you know, things like that. And then the small footprints, the larger footprints. For me right now, I would have to say, (laughs) I would love it to be an unknown biological species. But of course, we've never, just like with Bigfoot or any of these other creatures that people are trying to find, um, there's never been, there's been people that claim they found, you know, a dead Jersey, you know, but it never quite turns out. There's always something wrong or there's some blurry photo they show you or something like that. And it's never quite that convincing proof that you would want. Because of that haunting story from those two rangers that, you know, spoke with my brother, I tend to look towards um, the idea of demon. But not demon in the sense that we're we're used to say. I mean, in a future podcast, we're going to definitely talk about exorcisms and and demonic possessions and... and, uh, demonic experiences here. I mean, we have to, I think, because it was just on the History Channel. I just watched it, you know, last week on The Unexplained Show. I mean, it's definitely a topic, and there's definitely an awful lot going on out there. But uh, those, in those cases, you're seeing, like, something really hurting someone else, something evil. When you look back on all these stories that we just gave about the Leeds devil or the Jersey devil, we're not really seeing it hurting people. I mean, they talk about it terrorizes towns and, you know, scaring people and people are, schools were closing and factories, you know, mills yeah. were being shut down. Well, that part's true, but no one was really being hurt by it. I mean, yeah, there would be some reports of chickens being hurt and ducks and that horses, definitely. One farmer swore a tourist horse's throat out and all that. Well, uh, and that could be, or it could be a bear, quite frankly, I don't know. But there was all those reports. But normally it's certainly not attacking or hurting. I don't see any instances of it ever hurting or attacking a human being. So in that sense, I don't like to use the word demon. For me, I, I, I don't want to use the word cryptid because I don't, I'm not convinced it's just an unknown biological species. I think it's like a number of other things that we're looking at now, like the dogmen stories I've been telling you about, and we'll be doing that podcast on that or these Bigfoot creatures or whatever, I do think that we have to keep an open mind and talk about the possibility of sometimes that there may be more to our world than we can see, and certainly that we can, than we can understand right now. And there may be that possibility of some creatures that seem to be able to come in and out of our zone of existence, scare us, terrify us, you know, get us, get us all worked up, and then kind of go back, however it is, through portals or whatever it is. But when I think about what those rangers said to my brother, they're not hurting, whatever it is, it's not hurting anybody, but it's affecting the laws of nature as we know them here on this planet. Same type of thing with unidentified aerial phenomena. There are these things that seem to somehow be able 
to bypass our understanding of physics and the physical laws of our of our planet. And so the fact that you could affect an area of the Pine Barrens and stop all noise because everything's in fear, everything just grows silent because there's this presence moving through. I don't know if it necessarily has the body of a kangaroo and, and hoofits. I mean, it could. I don't know. I don't know what kind of image, what kind of physical form it could take, but I would think of it, I honestly think of it as some sort of interdimensional creature, but I do believe in it. I think the Jersey Devil is real, and I can't offer that story about the rangers. It's just an anecdote. It's me telling you a story. I, I mean, I would never lie. I absolutely believe it. I know my brother wouldn't lie to me at all about that. Uh, I do believe that, that that is exactly what they said to my brother, and I do believe that in telling that truth, they're, they're describing to me a creature that has some powers that are beyond the natural world that we live in now. So I think it's real, but I would tend, I, I don't like to use that word demon, so I'm just going to say interdimensional. I'll add another category on here, but I do believe, and that's why you don't see it all the time. That's why there's long periods of time where there's no reports or there's been no instance or anything like that. But then it must, I don't know. I mean, with all those footprints you see and all that, I don't know, does it on occasion or sometimes actually take on some sort of physical shape, some kind of strange shape, like some of those descriptions that we've read about the Jersey Devil. Whatever it is, right now, Uncle Mark's opinion is that it is. It's an interdimensional creature. That's the best term I can come up with. That comes in and out of our reality. For whatever reason, it definitely tends to hang around in that one area. And again, that opens up the whole idea of, is that an area where there's a portal between our universe and a parallel universe? And somehow things are sometimes able to go back and forth for centuries, apparently, since you can go back quite a ways with this uh, particular legend. I I agree. If I had to pick one on this list, I would probably either go with six or seven. I think those are two of the most safe choices, I would say. Some of the other ones are, are kind of feasible answers or theories. I just, I don't really like any of them other than six or seven. I think those are, those are two that make the most sense to me. Um, but if I had to pick something, I would have to agree with what, what Mark is saying because uh, we were talking about this prior to obviously recording. And what he was saying was making sense, and it kind of connected all together, especially uh, how some of the, the sightings said it was three feet. Some of them said it was eight feet. So maybe these interdimensional beings are coming from dimensions, different dimensions, and they're different from these dimensions. Like they're how maybe I would look different in a different dimension. They look different in different, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling here. But hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. No, I think you make a lot of sense right now. I mean, you know, if we go, because I'm slightly older than you, as you never fail to remind me, slightly. if we go back to when I was younger, I mean, no one was talking about, you know, interdimensional anythings or parallel universes or anything like that. I mean, just in my lifetime, I've seen tremendous changes in the way uh, physics is being approached now by mainstream scientists and physicists. And again, just this past week, like I, we were talking about, you know, I was watching an astrophysicist speaking about those unidentified aerial phenomena, for example, uh, that you and I did the, our very first podcast on. We talked about, you know, those, we used to call them UFOs, that are Navy pilots, uh, Navy, uh, using our Navy jets, they were able to uh, film these craft, these aerial craft or phenomena that can do things that we can't do. And when I was listening to that astrophysicist on, on television this week, he was explaining that, you know, we don't even understand what they're doing, let alone how they're doing it. But we, we can say this much, we can't do anything that we're, what they're doing, we can't match. We don't have any, and he goes, nobody on earth can match that. He doesn't even think that any other country could be coming up with these unidentified aerial phenomena can do these things, the hypersonic speeds and the incredible turns and all that. He said that would take a tremendous amount of money and energy, and they would have to have some kind of physical plans where you're actually constructing these things. Why haven't we picked up on that if it was some other country? So his idea is, you know, you have to keep an open mind on almost all of these subjects anymore because as time goes by, we keep learning more and more things, and we're beginning to realize that things don't always operate the way we have believed they operate and that we still think they should operate. So I would say the same thing about this. Yes, the legend goes back a long time. I think those professors were right that, you know, you can kind of uh, downplay the whole idea of Mother Leeds and the 13th child, and, you know, it transforms into this hideous creature with all these midwives standing around screaming, and then either it beats them to death, and in one legend it eats the entire family and then flies up the chimney, 
what a pig. I mean, you know, there's all these great stories, legends. I agree with them. I don't think we have to believe any of those origin stories that we were looking at earlier. I agree. And like they said, you don't really have any documentation. This was something that really grew out of political and theological fights back in those days, you know, between the Quakers and and their enemies uh, at that time and and between people who were, you know, starting to lean more towards independence and those that were still very pro-British. I I agree with all that. But my question is, when you read that story and you were telling us the the story of the, the woman who wrote the article, you know, about what they experienced in the Pine Barrens when they were college students, oh, the story that I told about my brother with the Rangers, I'm more interested in that. I mean, I can do away with all the mother lead stuff and all that. I don't need that. I want to know about what those rangers said to my brother. I want to know about what that woman experienced in the Pine Barrens with all those classmates of hers. That, to me, is the more important part of the legend of the Jersey Devil right now, is that is there actually something physical? Is there something that can manifest itself somehow, especially in the Pine Barrens region, because that's where really most of the sightings have been? Is there something to that story? And I firmly believe there is and that we're going to continue to investigate this, and we'll be doing a follow-up podcast on the Jersey Devil. I agree, and that's our biggest thing. We want to keep an open mind, especially with all these different topics that we're going to be researching, and we want everyone else to also have an open mind. I think it's a good thing to have, and if you have any questions or anything about the podcast that doesn't pertain to my bad math or reading, please feel free. (laughs) Darn. (laughs) (laughs) Please feel free to comment, uh, share with your friends, family, whoever, and um, we'll wrap it up here, I think. Yes, Zach and, I are, okay. Zach and I are making some plans, just before we pull that hideous thing out, uh, Zach and I are making some plans to go down to the Pine Barrens ourselves to do some uh, film work, and um, who knows, this could be the child of the Jersey Devil, I don't know. Would you look at that? Yes. So, with that being said, um, this is our little mascot. We bring him up every episode. We still haven't really gotten any name suggestions for him, so if you're feeling... Like you have a name, please suggest something, anything, please, so we can refer to him as something, a name. I think <laughs> that's really that's really as self-explanatory as it gets for this. Uh, and with that being said, uh, I've said that like six times. <laughs> um, we thank you for watching or listening. Uh, feel free to reach out to us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, we thank you for watching. And listening to this episode of Uncle Mark's Attic, have anything to say? We hope you enjoyed this episode. And like I said, we're going to do follow up on it. And we always try to keep an open mind here in the attic. Everyone is welcome. And we definitely try to keep an open mind as we go through each one of these topics or subjects that we're doing. So we hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you next time here in the attic on another topic. We also thank you for bearing with us at the beginning, laughing. It took us a really long time to get the hang of it, and we finally got it with this take, so we appreciate. And maybe you'll see those bloopers sometime soon. No, no. <laughs> Over my dead body, will you see? I will have the Leeds devil back me up on this. You're not showing any of those bloopers. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Uncle Mark's Attic. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye now. <laughs>